so we are in a series in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, and um, we got up to chapter 5, and we're taking our time. We're, we're in the Beatitudes, and uh, we're going uh, to we're, we're take a handful of weeks here. And we're not giving one week to every single Beatitude, but we are taking our time uh, as, as we move through them. And uh, part of what we've done every week is just uh, try to put ourselves in the context of what Jesus is doing. Uh, these are the opening words of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And uh, he starts off with these things called Beatitudes. And, and most weeks we've, we've uh, just invited ourselves to remember the fact that uh, all of us long for happiness. Uh, that that is a, uh, an ingrown reality for the human uh, experience. Uh, last Sunday we read a little bit of the Declaration of Independence, uh, where our founders said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness had like made the cut for like the things they said are like the top level priorities, the top level goals. It, it's, it's been true for uh, throughout the course of, of human history. We all long for happiness. And theologians pick up on this idea, and they basically indicate that this is the eidetic age. This is the idea of wanting what was in the garden in the first two chapters of the Bible when everything was right, when shalom ruled the world, when peace was, was, was the norm, when God was with his creation and creation was with him, and all things were right. We want the garden of Eden back. Uh, and when we say that we're longing for happiness, and we are not just longing for like fluffy feelings. We, we're longing for something deeper than that. Deep satisfaction. Flourishing. Flourishing. So this word beatitude is not a word that we use very often. It's not a common word in our vocabulary. Um, and so just how do we get that word? Well, the New Testament is written in Greek. And the Greek word that you see at the beginning of verse uh, 3, 4, 5, all the way through chapter 5 there, you see the word blessed. Well, that Greek word is the Greek makarios. Makarios, uh, that's the Greek, the Greek word, it was eventually translated into Latin, and the Latin word is beatus. And you can see how beatus became beatitude, and that word kind of hung around. That's from the Latin translation of makarios. And then most of the English translations have chosen the word blessed to try to communicate that makarios uh, idea. And so uh, that's why most of the English translations say blessed are the born spirit. Blessed are those who are born. But what is it? Use these words, but, but what is it, the attitude? And the description or the definition we've been using is that they are a description of the good life from a Jesus' perspective. They're not divine blessings uh, that are bestowed upon you, they're not commands. Uh, but as one writer put it, they are congratulatory descriptions of people in a state of well-being. It's as if Jesus is walking through a field and he sees a tree that is just perfectly healthy. Green leaves, juicy fruit, uh, good bark, everything's right about that tree. And he's pointing at it and saying, that's a flourishing tree. When Jesus gives us the Beatitudes, it's like he's walking through the world and he sees people and he's pointing at them and saying, that's a flourishing person. Now, a lot of the things that he points to feel like they're upside down to us. Uh, but he's pointing them out and he's inviting us to live that kind of a life, too. So what we've seen so far is the poor in spirit. Uh, that the poor in spirit means that you recognize that the deepest problems in you and the deepest problems in the world are bigger than you, that you, you need help. Uh, we looked at those who mourn. And Jesus says, flourishing are those who mourn. And that, that Jesus has the audacity to say that it's the people who lament what is broken 
when you experience the world and it's not right, the loss of a loved one, cancer, hardship, what tragedy, when you experience the ways in which the world is not right and you mourn, Jesus says that's a flourishing person because you're lamenting what is broken. Uh, the meek, flourishing are the meek, those who are humble and gentle. Jesus says that's, that's the way to go. That's, that's the flourishing life. Last week we looked at those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, those who are desperate to have their whole person aligned with God's will, God's nature, and the coming kingdom. That you hunger for that. That you thirst for that. You know, those are words of desperation. And yet Jesus says that's the flourishing person. The flourishing person is the one who hungers and thirsts for everything to be right, for righteousness. Well, next up is blessed are the merciful. Uh, for they shall receive mercy. So who, who, are, who are the merciful? Let's, uh, let's take a look. Let's start by asking what is what mercy is. What, 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 is the, what is the Bible talking about when it uses this, this word? Well, here's the definition. Mercy is compassion for people in need. Uh, one author says it this way, uh, trying to draw a contrast between mercy and grace. It says, mercy always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress. Or you could say the results of sin, the results of brokenness. Then he says, grace always deals with the sin and the guilt itself. So what this author is trying to say is that mercy is really giving attention to the, to the effects, to, to, the, to what the outcome is, the aftermath of sin and brokenness. That mercy is looking around and it sees pain, and it sees misery, and it sees distress, and it cares about that. There's actually compassion for those who are experiencing those effects. And Jesus is saying that a flourishing person is one who is merciful, that is actually full of mercy, where their, their whole life recognizes this, this reality, has, has a compassion towards people who are in need. Jesus is talking about something who's full of mercy, full of compassion. Uh, and mercy is tied up in action. Uh, if you were to survey the Bible and the way the Bible talks about mercy, um, and the way it indicates this, this what, what, what is mercy, what does mercy do? What, well, mercy, mercy produces. Mercy acts. There's this passage in James, James chapter 2, where James says, man, if you look at somebody and they're hungry, and you just say to them, oh, I hope that you get filled. I'll pray for you but you don't actually give them food, like, you're missing the point. If you say, you know, somebody's naked, and you say, oh, I'll pray that you get clothes, and you don't give them clothes, like, you're missing the point. And as the Bible talks about mercy, it gives that kind of an indication uh, time and time again, uh, that this, this sense of if, if you are a merciful person, you're a person in action. You're a person on the move. You're actually not just seeing those needs, but you're actively working to show compassion. You're actually working to meet those needs. But I want to use one of Jesus' most famous parables uh, to help us understand what Jesus is talking about when he calls us to mercy, or when he points out the merciful as flourishing people. And we're going to use this parable throughout the rest of the sermon. Um, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, which is 25 through 36. And so if you have your Bibles open, you can turn over just a, a, through the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and then you'll find the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. And what you see in those uh, uh, 10 or 12 verses is a, uh, is a parable. 
Jesus tells a story. Um, but there's an introduction to the story. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you have wondered, like, I, I've heard the story of the Good Samaritan before, but why did Jesus tell that story? Well, there, there's a little bit of a lead-up to why Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Maybe you've never heard the Good Samaritan at all. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a summary. So, so here's what happens in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is interacting with some Jewish leaders, and they, like always, they're trying to trap him. In verse 25, in the words of the word uh, in the ESV is that they were testing him, or that to test him. But that word test has a sense of like, uh, a, like a, a, a desire to track, to track, to catch you in your words. And so Jesus is interacting with Jewish leaders. He does this a lot. These Jewish leaders are trying to get Jesus to say something that will get him in hot water. And so as he interacts with this, this lawyer, uh, the lawyer says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know, you're a lawyer. Well, what, what does the law say? What, what's, what's the answer in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament scriptures? What, what does it say? And the lawyer, uh, you know, gives a summary, which obviously is, is probably what your only option is, to give a summary of the law. And so the lawyer says back to Jesus, well, the law says that I have to love God with everything I've got, my heart, soul, mind, all of it, and to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus looks back at the lawyer and says, yes, yes, do that, and you will live. And so Jesus gives this uh, pretty clear you know, answer right back to him, that you got the right answer, now just go do that. Love God with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the lawyer, remember, is trying to trap Jesus. And so he comes back to Jesus, and he says, and who is my neighbor? Because the second part of that summary that he gave was to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's like, okay, I know these laws about loving God, but what does it look like to love my neighbor? Who, who is my neighbor? And that is why Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because this lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And so the summary of this parable is that, she, that the story that Jesus tells is that there's a man uh, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the indication is this man is probably a Jewish man. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you've uh, made a trip to, to the Holy Land, uh, it's not uncommon on, on trips to the Holy Land to actually go to the Jericho Road. Uh, when, when I got to go there a few years ago, uh, we, we went to the Jericho Road. Um, and you know, they'll tell you that historically it's a very dangerous uh, road. Uh, and so uh, Jesus says there's a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, a very dangerous road. And the danger hits him. He gets robbed, he gets beaten, and he is laying on the side of the road in serious trouble. Well, as he's laying there, uh, a priest comes, a, a religious leader of the Jewish people comes, and he sees the beaten man on the road, and he scoots to the other side of the road and walks by him and does nothing. And then there's a, a Levite, another religious leader of the Jewish people come, and he sees the beaten man, and he scoots to the side of the road and, and does nothing. And then the third man comes, and this third man Jesus describes as a Samaritan. And there's a lot of things we can say about a Samaritan, but a Samaritan is, is uh, what they, they were hated by the Jewish people. They were kind of like considered like a half-breed. And they were treated as if they were worthless. They have, there's all kinds of like really stark uh, quotes and ideas that the Jewish people had about the Samaritan people. 
They, they couldn't stand them. They were, they were hated by the Jews. And this Samaritan comes walking down the road, and he sees the beat-up man. And he has compassion on him. And if you look at verses 33 through 35 of Luke chapter 10, you see that this Samaritan uh, helps him at great cost to himself. He risks his life. I mean, what happened to this guy? He got jumped and beaten and robbed and left for dead. Now the Samaritan is stopping to help him. You, you don't think that he's in the crosshairs? You don't think that he's endangering his life by stopping in the very place where someone else was attacked? He spent his time. Surely this took hours. Uh, there's even indications that he spent the night in helping this guy get care. He spent his own money. He's, he, he takes him to a place to get care. Uh, you know, and he says, I'm going to come back, and when I come back, I'll pay his whole bill. You know, how long does it take to get healthy? You know, my, my, my liver stuff's been going on for two weeks, and it's, it's not even that severe. And so it's like, you know, it, takes a, it takes a while to get healthy, and this Samaritan says, I'm going to come back, and when I come back, I'll pay his whole bill. In other words, the Samaritan gets dirty. He risks his life, he spends his time, he spends his own money, he gets his hands dirty, he gets involved in this person's life in order to show compassion, in order to help them out. And so verse 36 comes along and Jesus says, all right, lawyers, so you tell me, which one was the real neighbor? Which of the three people walking down the road, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. And so Jesus tells this whole story in response to explaining who a neighbor is and how you treat your neighbors. And in the end, Jesus says, you tell me who the real neighbor was. And the lawyer knows. The lawyer says it's the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and, and do likewise. And Jesus tells this compelling kind of upside-down story of a beaten man who was helped by a Samaritan who had mercy on him. Remember, mercy is compassion for people in need. Jesus is painting a picture of what mercy is and what mercy looks like. So if that's what mercy is, you know, why, is why is mercy a problem? I, I think mercy is actually a problem uh, in our culture, and I actually think there's quite a few reasons for it. But maybe you're sitting here today and you just think mercy doesn't work. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't pan out. We, you know, we, we live in a twisted and broken world where, you know, things, you know, don't always work out right. Um, it's not uncommon for you to do something to try to help somebody, and what you did to try to help them actually ends up getting thrown back in your face. That you may have had the best intentions in the world of trying to, you know, show compassion or trying to help this person out, and they just... They just, they treat you like trash. They, they ignore your help or they abuse your help. You know, the world is, is broken. The world's, the world's a mess. Maybe you've offered somebody mercy and they've totally taken advantage of you. Uh, this, this is a common experience in the world. Uh, you could conclude that mercy doesn't work. That people just take you for soft and they take more advantage of you. If you show mercy, then people are going to take advantage of you showing mercy. You know, some of you know about the Enneagram. It's a personality uh, tool. Um, I, I'm, I'm an eight on the uh, Enneagram. And uh, one of the things that apparently is true of an eight, which does resonate with me, and it's not necessarily flattering, um, is that eights 
have a real heart for the underdog. That AIDS can really stick up, uh, can have a lot of mercy towards the person, like the down and out. But there's a glitch in, in my showing of mercy. There, there's, a, there's a little problem. And, and the problem is, is that I give mercy if I think you deserve it. And so I have this very subjective, it's often, uh, you know, it's not even conscious, I don't think. But I, I have this subjective sense in which if I think you deserve it, then I will be in dogged defense of you. I, I, I will go the extra mile to, to help you out. But if I do, Matt Heron Matt, and I conclude that you don't deserve the help, that you did have the resources that you need, or that it's, it's, it's really your, like, it was, you, you willfully got yourself in this boat, then I have a very hard time stirring up compassion, stirring up mercy. And that's not a very positive thing to realize about yourself, but it's better to realize it than to not realize it at all. And it helps me at least to have an awareness of the fact that when I'm trying to navigate the subject of mercy or individuals who need mercy, I need to be aware of my own tendency to think, does this person deserve it? Does this person deserve the help? Are they worthy of getting mercy? And so you, you might have your own hiccups that come when you think about mercy. And I understand, it is a really complicated thing. You know, every year during the Holy Week, we take a mercy offering. And over the years, you have become more and more generous towards that offering. And this year, over $40,000 came in during that window of time to go into our mercy fund to be able to help uh, people in our congregation and people in our city in ways that, uh, that, that they, they need help, that we can be compassionate, that we can come alongside. And so we, we want to do this. And those of you who've been involved with our benevolence or our mercy work, you, you know some of the tensions that we feel as we help people, and then they come back 30 days later and ask for the same kind of help. And it can, it can be very complicated and very confusing even to try to figure it out how to navigate the subject of mercy. And so, you know, that, those might be things that run through your mind. You, you might think that mercy, uh, you don't like the subject of mercy because mercy is for the weak. You know, when I was a kid, um, we did not have TV for a long time. But my grandparents uh, not only had TV, they had HBO. They lived in Flint. I, lived, I grew up in Maryland. They lived in Flint. And they had a VCR, and they would record all the movies on HBO. And they had a room that looked like a blockbuster. Kids, blockbuster is where you would rent <laughs> But they just had shelves of VCRs, just VCR tapes of all these movies uh, from HBO. And so here I was, a kid that didn't even have TV, and then we would go visit my, my grandparents in Flint, and they just had all kinds of movies. Well, the one year, uh, I show up at their house for, the summer, for our summer trip, and they had a movie called the Karate Kid. And I watched The Karate Kid, and I was so addicted. I watched it, just, I kept watching it. I'd get done, and you had to rewind back then. But you had to get done, and rewind the VCR tape and watch it again. And it got so bad that my older cousins who lived in Flint took that, took that tape, and they hit it. So that, so that I couldn't watch uh, The Karate Kid anymore. 
But you know, if you watch the Karate Kid, it's made a comeback. You know, they've, they've uh, brought it back, a remake of sorts uh, that I think is on Netflix. Um, but if you know, the bad guys in the Karate Kid are Cobra Kai. And Cobra Kai have a bottom. And it is straight first, straight hard, no mercy, right? And for them, it's like, their sensei, their, their, their teacher, it's like, mercy, he actually says, mercy is for the weak. And so, so maybe when you think about mercy, you have some, some programs running in the back that create some complexity for you as you navigate the subject of mercy. As true as all of those things might be, I actually think there's a much bigger problem. Go back to Luke 10 and the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, look at how the lawyer interacts with Jesus at the beginning of that, before Jesus actually tells the story. I told you that this parable wants to trap Jesus. Jesus says, what do you tell me? What's, what's in the law? And the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you answered correctly. Do this, you will live. Look at verse 29. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The lawyer's interaction with Jesus, he's trying to trap Jesus. But as the conversation unfolds, the lawyer shows that the lawyer wants to do it himself. That the lawyer wants to justify himself. To be justified is to be declared right. And this lawyer is basically saying, I'm asking you about eternal life. I'm not asking for help. I'm asking for the checklist. I'm asking for what I need to do. What, where are the stairs that I need to climb? Where's the ladder that I need to climb? What is it that I need to do to inherit eternal life? He wants to justify himself. You see, the, the Jewish lawyer is telling Jesus that he doesn't need assistance. It's just like, point me in the right direction. I'm going to do it. I, I'll, I'll do it. And then Jesus tells this story of a man beaten in a ditch, and then these three men who pass by. But that sense, that, that, that attitude of wanting to justify yourself, of wanting to do it yourself, can you relate to that? In a lot of ways, this is the default attitude of the heart. We want to justify ourselves. We want to save ourselves. We want to earn it. We want to deserve it. We love the idea of having this, this uh, achievement, this sense of like, I did it, and now I get, I get the rewards of what I've done. It's, uh, it's maybe a little bit more prominent in the West, but it is the condition of the human heart. We want to achieve. We want to accomplish. We want to justify ourselves. We don't want to believe that we're the one in need. We don't like to think that we need mercy. That's the people who are weak. That's the people who can't do it for themselves. Yeah, mercy is good to give to others. But I don't need mercy. Like, what, what do I need to do? I think I can do this myself. We refer to these often as self-salvation projects. The things that I think that if I can have that, or if I can do that, then everything will be right. If I can get this in my life, or if I can accomplish this in my life, then everything will be right. We have a, a very strong sense of wanting to justify 
ourselves. Well, then how can you find mercy? Do you know what the most significant application of the Good Samaritan parable is? If you've been around long enough, about 10 years ago, we went through the Gospel of Luke. And when we hit this parable, it was extremely formative for us as we were just, just starting to develop a heart of mercy as a church family. And we came to Luke chapter 10 and we ran into this parable. And I think I can speak for all of us. It was an incredibly formative time. Uh, I, I still remember that Sunday, uh, of, 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 of the, the lead up to that Sunday of preparing and having uh, what felt like heart surgery all week long in regard to this idea of, of what, is, what, what, what is the, the point of this parable. If you think of it, there's four characters in the parable. There's the traveler who got robbed and beaten. There's the priest. There's the Levite. And there's the Samaritan. Who do you think you are in that parable? Well, let's be honest, no, nobody thinks that they're the priest or the Levite. No, no one is volunteering to say, I'm the person who, who walks by, the person in need, and ignores them. No, nobody wants to admit that. Most people think that they're the Good Samaritan. Most people think that they're the one who stops and helps. At bare minimum, most people think that that's the call of the parable, is for you to be the Good Samaritan. Maybe you struggle doing it, but that's what you should do, is you should be the Good Samaritan. And I think that there's a sense in which that application is appropriate. But that's not Jesus' primary point. See, until you see that you are actually the man in the ditch, until you see that you're the one who's been robbed and beaten by the sin and brokenness of your own heart and the sin and brokenness of this world, until you realize that you are in need of a rescuer, you will never understand Jesus' parable. You are not the hero. Jesus is the hero. Amen. Do you see what that means? It means that you need mercy. That Jesus is laying before us this reality that that is the greatest need that you have. You need mercy. You need to be rescued. You see, the message of the gospel is that you need rescued from the ultimate Good Samaritan, who, who is Jesus. The gospel is not a message of the fact you, know, you just need a little help, you need to be pointed in the right direction, you just need to be given the checklist, you just need to be pointed to the stairs. No, the message of the gospel is that you are dead, and that you need to be brought to life. C.S. Lewis has a quote, it says that Jesus did not come to make bad people good, he came to make dead people alive. And this rescue of Jesus, this work of Jesus on our behalf, it is your ultimate need, and it's the ultimate need in the world. Jesus wants to meet you right there. Jesus wants to meet you right there with his mercy. Do, do, do you see that Jesus is the ultimate merciful one? Do, do you see that as the Good Samaritan stopped and got his hands dirty, and at great cost to himself, time and money and emotions and danger, all of these things... Is that not the story of the Son of Man coming to this earth and getting his hands dirty in order to rescue us from the realities of sin and brokenness? That Jesus Christ is the ultimate uh, Good Samaritan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we find out that in Jesus' journey here, this is what happened to him. That he was made sin. He who knew no sin was made sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that's what Jesus did. 
just like the Good Samaritan, he took all of that upon himself. He said, I'll pay their debt with my own resources. I'll give the time. I'll get my hands dirty. I'll be the rescue that they so desperately need. If you've come to the realization that you need mercy, if you have received the mercy of Jesus, then what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5 is that you will become a giver of mercy. That if you genuinely receive mercy, then you're going to be a giver of mercy. If you haven't received mercy, then you don't have any resources to give the kind of mercy that Jesus is talking about. But if you've been a receiver of mercy, you will become a giver of mercy. Being truly merciful, the the Bible actually says, like, that's the tell. That's the reveal. When you show mercy to other people, that's the reveal that the gospel has actually dropped to the deepest part of your heart. That you actually realize that you have received the mercy that you most desperately need. In Matthew chapter 25, uh, we'll, we'll get there in a few years, but in Matthew chapter 25, there's this account where Jesus on the last day is interacting with people, and he talks to them and he says, you know, I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. And then the the other group did. And they're like, wait, what? When did this happen? And Jesus is like, when you did it to the least of these, when you modeled those things, you were modeling me. When you did those things, you ministered to me. And he says, enter the kingdom. He's like, that's the reveal that you've actually received the mercy that you so desperately need. And so the ministries that we get to partner with, like single mom and Freedom Builders, and Kids Hope, and Christ Hope, uh, and, and the adoptions that some of the families in our churches have been able to pursue in foster care and safe families. You know, when we're engaged in all of these things, we are caring for those as if you are loving and caring for Jesus. These are beautiful reflections of the fact that we have received the mercy that makes all the difference. This is why Jesus says, flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He's not saying we earn our mercy. He's saying that the only truly merciful people are people who have first received mercy from Jesus. And on that last day, they'll receive that mercy in full. If Jesus freely joined us in our misery, enduring terrible inconvenience of showing us compassion in the middle of our hurt and sin, he showed us the ultimate mercy and he models how we can show mercy to others. I want to close with this. I've read it here before, um, but this is a uh, uh, from a little book. It's on our book wall out there. We've referenced it many, many times over the years. Uh, it's from a gospel primer uh, by Milton Vincent. And this is just a way, it's a way that this could be applied. And this is this, it's called uh, A Heart for the Poor. And it's on the screen behind me. This is what Milton Vincent writes. Like nothing else could ever do, the gospel instills in me a heart for the downcast the poverty-stricken, and those in need of physical mercies, especially when such persons are of the household of faith. When I see persons who are materially poor, I instantly feel a kinship with them, for they are physically what I was spiritually when my heart was closed to Christ. Perhaps some of them, in their condition because of sin, are, are in their condition because of sin, but so was I. Perhaps they are unkind when I try to help them, But I, too, have been spiteful to God when he has sought to help me. Perhaps they are thankless and even abuse the kindness I show them. But 
But how many times have I been thankless and used what God has given me to serve selfish ends? Perhaps a poverty-stricken person will be blessed and changed as a result of some kindness I show him. If so, God be praised for his grace through me. But if the person walks away unchanged by my kindness, then I still rejoice over the opportunity to love as God loves. Perhaps the person will repent in time, but for now, my heart is chastened and made wiser by the tangible depiction of what I myself have done to God on numerous occasions. The gospel reminds me daily of the spiritual poverty into which I was born, and also of the staggering generosity of Christ towards me. Such reminders instill in me both a felt connection to the poor and a desire to show them the same generosity that has been lavished on me. When ministering to the poor with these motivations, I not only preach the gospel to them through word and deed, but I reenact the gospel to my own benefit as well. And you can could, you could change the, the, the target. It doesn't have to necessarily be the materially poor. But this is the heart that the gospel produces in those who have received the mercy that Jesus pours out in the gospel. Every Sunday we finish our service by coming to the table. And as we come to this table, I invite you to come today realizing your neediness. Realizing that this bread and this cup represent the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus for you. The mercy of Jesus poured out for you that rescues us back to God. So if our service will please come. If you're a Christian, then we invite you to come and take these, these elements. If you're not, there will be prayers on the screen, and we invite you instead to, to talk to Jesus. And, uh, and those prayers are meant to be tools for you. That's right. God, we thank you so much for this, this uh, invitation from Jesus to consider the flourishing are the merciful. Thank you for this parable that has uh, served uh, your people for 2,000 years, this, this invitation to, to consider uh, who, who is it that actually needs mercy? Who is it that is the one that's beaten down and in desperate need? God, would you help us to see first that we're the ones who need it, that we're the ones who need your mercy, that we're the ones who need your rescue? And then God, as we have received that, would you allow that to fill us and overflow uh, to those around us? Jesus' name we pray.